Hey, Nora. Hey, Sandy. What is going on? How's your weekend? Weekend's great. I did something last week that has been the like official end of, a, of an era in my life. And so this weekend, this week is um, my first actual vacation, really. Um, I mean, I took two weeks off in the summer. But aside from that, I feel like it's my first time that I can really just not write and not work. And that thing was my next book was sent to the printers. Ooh, that is so exciting. Tell me what that's like mm. when you're not writing or working. Because <laughs> even when I schedule vacations, I can't seem to get away. So something to look forward to in the future. I am really proud of you for taking that time out and <laughs> look forward to reading your next book. And you know what? I'm also looking forward to listening to your new podcast. <laughs> yes. Yes. Right. Can we tell the people that Nora will be in your ears a little bit more? <laughs> it's going to be quite an experiment to be in their ears and not have you with me. Oh, come on. You've done radio for so long. What do you mean? This mm, is, by myself. You're, you're just going back to your old, oh, not by, your haunt, <laughs> by yourself? It's going to be never by done this my by yourself? No, I mean, talking by myself, it's going to be like doing these talks that I often do. I mean, lots of us do talks and you talk for 45 minutes and people sit there and they're like, mm, yeah, it's very interesting. But the podcast's not going to have any guests and it's not really going to have any um, additional sounds. And so I'm a little bit nervous about how it's going to go. But um, but you can actually subscribe already uh, to the feed because the, the trailer is out. So if you look up Take Back the Fight, wherever you get your podcasts, you should be able to find it. And the first episode will drop very, very soon, if not already by the time you've listened to this. And so I'm very, very excited about that. And I'm also excited about the possibility of turning a book into a podcast. So the podcast is just a limited run podcast, and it's going to cover the themes. Um, talk. I'm, I'm going to talk about what I was thinking about when I was writing each chapter and talk about how we can apply the themes in the chapter to life today, life as we experience it in this like current pandemic, getting hopefully to the post pandemic period. And I'm it's it's a real big experiment. And so I hope that you tune in and I hope you let me know what you think. And I really hope that anyone else who's written books uh, starts to think about putting their information out in other formats like this, because sometimes you can reach someone through a podcast that you're not going to reach through the written page. So, yeah, two really big pieces of news I got to I got to announce this week. And I'm pretty, uh, as you say, sometimes it's hard to 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 unwind or to unhook from the world. But I got to be honest. I mean, when you when I was writing the COVID book, you know, it's been I started a year ago, actually, right now, like I started this the beginning of October in 2020. And mm -hmm. to be able to, to shut my brain off means that I don't have to look at COVID news and think, Oh, my God, I need to add that to my book. Oh, my God, I need to know everything about this. I need to stop everything and keep reading. And that feels great. That feels really fucking great. <laughs> Well, like I said, congratulations. And I know that you think it's an experiment, but um, for anyone who knows Nora, she's pretty fucking funny all on her own. And so <laughs> I imagine that this will be like kind of like listening to a stand up comedy set, but also a piercing commentary critique on the state of feminism in Canada in the digital age. And so if you haven't had a chance to read that book, um, that piercing critique is all over that book, and it's really, really great stuff. And so really looking forward to, to listening to you talk some more about it. So congratulations. Aw, thanks. 
All right, let's uh, let's say thank you some more. More thank yous. Yes, uh, we we are. Well, it is. We are currently recording on the ga- the day of thanks. <laughs> on that holiday called Thanksgiving. So let's give out some more thanks. Um, thanks to everybody, of course, who tunes into the podcast. We we know that a lot of you folks are sharing the podcast more, and that just is so awesome. We really appreciate it. We, you know, we don't get much attention uh, outside of um, our own channels. And so sometimes it takes, you know, you getting your friends into the podcast to make sure that other people can hear uh, the show. And so we really appreciate that. And we also appreciate everybody that um, throws us some money to be able to pay for the show. So thank you this week, especially to Glenn, Kathleen, Renee, and Chardonnay Moi, or Chardonnay Moi. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for your support and to everybody uh, who supports the podcast in whatever way you support us. We appreciate it. Yes. Thank you so much. Okay. What do you got, Nora? You've got a few things we want to mention before we get into the meat. What do you got? (laughs) The past two weeks has been this really interesting moment of reflection, um, probably because I don't know if journalists are just all like, oh, fuck, let's just like go on vacation finally because uh, the election's over. And of course, people need a break. So like, fair enough. Although <laughs> when you don't have enough journalists at the best of times, you absolutely do not have the, the, the enough journalists when they're all on vacation. <laughs> um, but the, in the in this space uh, where, I mean, there's not much discussion uh, about what's coming next with Trudeau. And of course, there's been other kind of issues like the, 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 the new uh, information about who's stashing and hoarding their profits offshore. Um, there has been a lot of interesting discussions um, on the left of the political spectrum. I'm not going to say exactly the left because I know people would like quibble with some of that, but certainly among the NDP and the Greens supporters uh, separately in um, what went wrong, wh- who is to blame, very importantly, and what was to learn from what just happened in the last election. And I think that it is definitely worth a conversation. And Sandy, I know that you've had some discussions, uh, both publicly and, and of course, you know, I'm sure you're having some private discussions, as I've had some with you myself, <laughs> um, about how we're supposed to understand the performance of the last of the of the of these two parties in the last federal election um and what does it mean especially as we're seeing parties like Maxim Bernier's party make such huge strides of course still not winning a seat but you know come on making some strides so i don't know if this is going to be a wonky episode or a really in the weeds episode but i think that you and i are going to be able to offer some ideas and analysis about what's really up with the structural analyses of the failures of uh, both of the parties or successes, I guess, depending on who you are, because there have been obviously some discussions of successes, too. Yes. And so, Nora, last week I said this phrase, which, uh, you know, I shouldn't have said it. I shouldn't have jinxed myself. But I said, and that is the last I want to talk about Elizabeth May on this podcast. Do you remember that I said that? I do remember that. And I do also remember thinking you will regret having said that. (laughs) Uh, It was the truth, though. It was the truth. And yet (laughs) here we are. And I'm going to bring it up again. So last week I was invited onto CTV's Power Play to respond to some comments that former leader of the Green Party, Jim Harris made. 
and comments that they referenced that Elizabeth May had made. Um, and those comments were to disavow Annamie Paul's own narrative that she had experienced anti-black racism during the campaign. Annamie Paul made that statement on Instagram, I believe, and didn't say anything specific about what that experience was, just that she had had it, which is, I'm just going to come right out and say it, unfucking deniable <laughs> because mm -hmm. unless the Green Party is some sort of institution that none of us has realized that it is, <laughs> of course, the first black woman to be a leader of a federal party is going to be experiencing anti-black racism. Just saying the phrase, just being the person is going to get people out of the woodwork uh, to send threats, trolls, whatever it is, uh, her way. And as we talked about last year, last year, oh my God, not last year, a couple years ago on this podcast, Nora, um, when it came to Jagmeet Singh, who was also quite clearly experiencing uh, racism when he first became leader of the NDP, and that has continued to this day, we asked uh, ourselves, we put it out there, what did the NDP do to prepare for a situation where that leader was going to be experiencing very clear bouts of racism throughout his time campaigning? Asking that question and pointing to the fact that that exists does not mean that Jagmeet Singh is the best leader there ever was. It simply means that Jagmeet Singh experiences racism that should be identified, it should be called out, and it is the responsibility of his team and of that party to prepare for it. Now, after I made some comments uh, critiquing what Jim Harris said, um, which amounted to a number of different tropes about black people, including that enemy Paul asked for too much money, including that she was too authoritarian, including that she usurped power in the party. I, my comments were that, at, uh, and sorry, including that um, she, was, she was saying that she experienced anti-black racism, but that she didn't. She absolutely didn't. <laughs> Which <laughs> for a white man to, to think that he's the authority on that and to um, boldly make the claim, no, she did not, is outrageous. I responded to those comments, and I also responded to comments that uh, Elizabeth May made in the, in the Toronto Star, um, especially the one that says, you know, uh, I was really happy to step down and hope that an Indigenous person would take the lead as the new leader of the Green Party, and we didn't get that. We got um, a, a black woman who's brilliant and great as well. And um, those comments, all of those things together, amount to an experience of anti-black racism. And uh, that cannot be denied, and it should be called out. And part of the reason it has to be called out is because it does serious harm to other black people who are in very visible positions to have other people say, this claimed experience of anti-blackness is false. It's not real. Do not listen to this person. Because that's the response that we get all the time. However, 
when I made these comments, I got contacted by a lot, a lot of non-black people publicly from who are identifying themselves as from the Green Party, uh, saying that, one, I should not support Enemy Paul because of uh, her political takes on, an, on a number of different issues. And that, uh, two, it was really disappointing to see me uh, validate um, a lie, the lie being that she experienced anti-black racism. Um, I have not responded to these things uh, on Twitter or Facebook, and I won't because I'm not interested in helping the rage algorithm point more rage towards a black woman who most definitely has experienced anti-black racism. But I just think that that is just so absurd. The barometer for whether or not we call out anti-black racism or incidents of racism shouldn't be innocence or perfection. It never has been. It never should be. That is fucking ridiculous. And if that's your approach to racism you need to rethink how you are thinking of these people. We are whole people. If you think that it's okay for a leader to say, well, let's just get somebody else indigenous in here, or let's just get somebody else black in here, it's interchangeable, we don't really care. Um, and then be really absurd about not wanting that person to exercise their own agency in the role, you should also be carefully looking at that. Either way, part of the, the conclusion that both Jim Harris and Elizabeth May were making was that the downfall of the Green Party was solely the fault of Annamie Paul. And it's not. It's not. The downfall of the Green Party, that disastrous last election, which had them in fifth place, is the fault of a number of people in the Green Party. It doesn't come down to one person, and it certainly doesn't come down to one person who's relatively new and was unsupported by so many people in the party. And that is a jump-off point to a discussion that we want to have about the responsibility that we all have to one another when we start working on what we hope will be uh, a leftist, positive rupture creating project um, together. And we're going to talk about that with the experience of political parties. Yes. Now, I just have to correct one uh, thing you said off the top. And this correction comes from Amelie Nicolas, who is kind of shouting about this on Twitter, that Enemy Paul was not the first black leader of a federal party. Uh, that was Vivienne Barbeau, who is the leader of the Bloc Québécois after Gilles Deceppe resigned. Um, of course, Paul is the first black uh, leader, black woman leader who is elected, right, which is which is important, too, because it, it means that people put enough support behind her to elect her and then to then not give the support to her to, like, make her leadership work. Right. Um, and so I think your summary was was excellent and I think really, really helpful to then step a little bit away from the Green Party, although there's a lot to say about the Green Party, but I, I imagine we're going to move away from the Green Party and talk more generally. Um, and, and even though I also have been contacted by many people all week about your comments, Sandy, which I think is so interesting. Um, and, you know, people, of course, people be in touch with me anytime you want and we can talk about these issues. But a lot of the ways that the comments were being um, uh, skewed was, was to say, oh, I'm so surprised that Sandy's a Zionist. Which was like, 
um, what? That's like this clip has has nothing at all <laughs> to do with Zionism. What the fuck are you talking about? Um, and we can tease out also how um, these kinds of rumors, innuendo, uh, trying to sink black women is just straight up anti-black racism. Like that's that's what it is. Um, and I've had some good conversations with people trying to un- untease this to like make it obvious, to make it clear to people that cannot see it or who haven't seen it before, or maybe re- refuse to see it. Um, but while you were talking, Sandy, I was brought back uh, into writing my last book and and really thinking through what had been written about the collapse of the National Action Committee on the Status of Women, which was Canada's like national pan-Canadian feminist umbrella organization. After they elected... Wait, I have to say one thing before you get into this. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, to be fucking clear, I am not a fucking Zionist. Free Palestine every day, all day. What is absolutely abhorrent about the way that this discussion is going is that it appears that no matter what, you can always find a black person to blame for whatever is going on. Like, why, why are you um, targeting me to say that I'm a Zionist when what you really want to talk about is the Green Party? Because the Green Party as a whole has a history, including when Elizabeth May was leader, of ignoring or uh, responding with critical uh, disgust to initiatives like BDS campaigns and initiatives in support of Palestinian people. That is ridiculous. And my calling out of the anti-black racism that Annamie Paul has experienced does not mean that I support any of her positions on anything political because Mm. I don't really care about the Green Party. That's never (laughs) been my bag, (laughs) just so you know. (laughs) And similarly, you know, I can support and say, or I can uh, be frustrated and say that uh, Justin Trudeau's treatment of Selena Caesar Chavan was... Uh, ridiculously anti-black and disgusting, and she shouldn't have experienced that, and also still be highly confused and critical of her decision to vote conservative in the last election. Um, I think that the internet does a lot to remove nuance from discussions, and like how lazy and disgusting for so many of these people uh, one who, who contacted me directly and said, yeah, of course she experienced anti-black racism, but you shouldn't be talking about it. <laughs> because <laughs> and um, to, to that white man and to everyone else like uh, fuck you that's not how anti-racism works I was talking about the the leadership of Sanera Tabani of the National Action Committee of the Status of Women Canada and I and I, I think that this is an interesting parallel because this is 25 years ago 30 years ago almost now and this was an organization that struggled with racism internally and to try and demonstrate how anti-racist it was, Sonera Tabani, who's the first racialized person to lead the organization, was elected. And her presidency was a disaster. She was targeted directly by members of the House of Commons, called really horrific things by them. And the the um, the federal council and the membership didn't 
step up. They didn't support her enough. And I explore this in my book um, using um, uh, comments that had been gathered by Judy Rebick in 10,000 Roses to just show how little support there there was for her. And then the collapse of the organization was then blamed on the fact that um, like her personally, but then also that the organization wasn't ready to have someone who wasn't white at the head of it. And, you know, fast forward now a couple of decades, and here we are with the Green Party in such a similar situation where you have people, as you said, Sandy, pinning all of the blame on on Annamie Paul as if she didn't just get elected. Like she didn't just get like literally physically supported by a majority of the party. And of course, it wasn't a huge majority. It was a small majority. But the party then needed to put the energy and resources into supporting her uh, to make it successful. If it wasn't going to be, as Elizabeth May says, we're going to just find someone who's indigenous or black in this case to to lead the party. You know, in, in 2019, the Green Party had less diverse candidates run than the People's Party of Canada. Like, I'm not they had, surprised. They had, oh, I'm not surprised either. And But this is something that seems to get lost. And so somehow we have Palestinian activists, many who I respect, um, who have just all of a sudden just thrown racism out the window to be like, no, no, this is a question of supporting Palestine, as if that kind of work is supposed to happen at the grassroots, that the fact that the members of the Green Party, a party that has better Palestinian policy than the other parties, can then also vote for someone who's a Zionist. What does that say about party policy and party membership? What does that say about the need for education of party policy and activism to defend party positions? What does that say about us on the left spending any fucking time at all on party policy? I mean, I think it's important, but I think that people put too much importance on it. If that means that someone can come out and get elected who doesn't support these policies that people have fought so hard to, to, to get passed, and then it becomes the issue to then say, no, this person needs to be, like, gone. Her, her leadership needs to be out. Like, no one can argue seriously that had a white man done literally exactly what Annamy Paul had done with her spokesperson or that staff person uh, going after elected me- members of parliament, that that there would have been such an intense call for, for them to resign. It would have been chalked up to mistakes. It, there would have been much more benefit of the doubt. And then fast forward four months later, Annamy Paul has this disastrous run in Toronto Centre. It's very clear she cannot stay on as leader. And everything goes back to these mistakes made in May. It's it's all very confusing. And, and it just seems that there's this like this. I don't know. It feels like there's a lot of people who are like, OK, finally, I have a legitimate reason to criticize this this black woman and not be called racist. And so I'm going to go for the jugular like that. That's what it's looked like online. And that's what it's looked like in some of the conversations that I've seen online. And fuck, like, if if that's what happens in a very, like, low-stakes situation, like the leadership of the fucking fifth party in Canada, like, what does that mean for the NDP? And what does that mean for the broader left as we're trying, we're trying, as there should be some sort of attempt to create organizational structures that actually can confront anti-black racism? Yeah, and I should have mentioned that um, at the same time that a lot of these... Uh, folks are contacting me publicly, privately in my DMs are a number of racialized people who say that they're part of the Green Party thanking me for saying something about it, which is just how these things go. And what I think is really 
critical about this is not like, sure, if you believe that she shouldn't be leader anymore, you want her to resign, you wanted a leadership review, all of those things, go for it. None of that is what I'm referring to when I'm saying um, like that there's, there's some awful shit going down here. But what I don't understand what's happening right now with what's happening right now is what is the point of this? Is the point just to say that Annamie Paul is a bad person and to to destroy her as a person, make sure that everybody out there in the political realm knows that Annamie Paul is a bad person, terrible leader, a Zionist, um, awful on all of the things and uh, should never be supported again, which is if that's the point of what's happening with the Green Party, uh, sure. I mean, sure. Okay. I mean, that is a thing you can do. If the point is to grow um, an eco-socialist group of people in the party, to make sure that certain sorts of decisions that have happened don't happen again, to protect the democratic structure of the Green Party, then shouldn't the executive council also be in your crosshairs? Then shouldn't some organizing throughout uh, the party also be a part of the goal? Like, I just don't understand, well, of course I do, why there's this hyper-focus here. And so much of a hyper-focus here that it's even to disavow um, what this woman says her own experience is. That's extremely fucked up and a form of how uh, misogynoir uh, replicates itself in organization after organization. And now... So to think about the the left more broadly, like let's think about this. I mean, there's there is a not altogether dissimilar situation that happened after Jagmeet Singh was elected. A lot of people were frustrated, didn't think that he was left enough, and there was this kind of weird one exodus from the NDP. Um, from the federal NDP, like people not wanting to to work um, uh, in the federal party anymore. In addition, I do know, I have heard that um, uh, people were let go also around the same time, but a lot of people left on their own. Um, And then there was also this sort of talking about him as though he was the wrong choice and all of these things that were going to follow um, in terms of policy, in terms of how the party moved forward, um, that was all going to be his fault. Although, of course, he's part of a big team in the NDP. He is a part of a tendency within the NDP. And that, to me, is all very confusing. Mm. Yeah, th- this is this is very interesting to me because you have a party, and the, and the, <laughs> the parallels of the Green Party is actually, there are a lot <laughs> here, Um it's just that the Green Party managed to flame out so much faster and Singh mm-hmm. can probably be l- the leader of the NDP as long as he wants. I mean, he's popular and he's winning his riding. <laughs> so that's like the fucking, you know, the bar, uh, the floor has been met and, and it can, he can only go up from there. Um, and he obviously has aspirations to go up from there, which is, you know, important. But the fact that you've got a party with a leader who um, 
puts puts forward an image of of newness, of youngness, of freshness. I mean, he is also all those things. Um, but that <laughs> the party is still led by people that are not new, not young, and not at all fresh. It, um, I think that it's actually that clash that when people um, are unsure about why the NDP has been so unable to push through that it, it kind of it, it rests on that. So you've got like the leader and their authenticity and their ability to connect to people is all like important from a from a strategic perspective, either through public relations or through just like on the ground organizing. This is a useful um, this is a, 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 an individual who's able to, to connect with people. So that's really, really important. And like, you know, to say nothing of the actual politics of individuals. But then you have the same people behind him who were also behind Mulcair, who were also behind Leighton, who have also been behind Notley, who have also been behind Horvath. And, and, and you, it's just and then, of course, mass exodus of people who are now behind Horgan, who uh, is, I mean, in my opinion, fucking up left, right and center, mostly right and center. <laughs> and I like that. Thank you. Thank you. Everybody, you can all use that now. And it's like. Okay, so at what point does does any failure at the NDP at the federal level in the NDP fall on the shoulders of Jugmeet beyond the fact that he's like not just firing everybody, even though he I suspect doesn't have that ability? It's really really interesting because these are because these are all kind of like hidden from view. Um, like the names of the people running the the national campaigns, we don't really they don't get talked about. Like I mean, they are talked about some sometimes, and of course, like Anne McGrath was doing the media cycle as like the director of the election election campaign, and Anne McGrath has been around forever, and she is one of these people who's gone from all of these candidates to all these candidates. And then you start to think, okay, so how new and fresh and young and and hip can can Singh be if all of the decisions are being made by the same people who made decisions? for Leighton, who made the same decisions for Mulcair. At some level, it's the team that matters um, far more than the individual because the individual's like at the whim of the team to, you know, I don't want to take all of uh, Singh's agency out of this. But of course, these are team efforts. These are not individual efforts, except because we don't see them and because of racism. A lot of that blame then falls on the shoulders of Singh himself. And then, of course, when you look at the campaign results and you say, well, the NDP didn't do very well in this last election, which is objectively true, then it's like, well, you know, should Singh be be out or not out? And it's like, who does that conversation benefit? That literally only benefits the people who would never be in the crosshairs because they're behind the scenes, except they're the ones that are actually making the strategic decisions. And they're the ones who would say, over our dead body, will you run on free higher education? Will you run on a massive inheritance tax? Will you run on increasing corporate taxes? Right? All of these things that Sandy and I talk all the time, all the time, all the time of us needing, this is the group of people that looks at the federal policy that may have passed the last convention and say, bah, fuck, you know, it doesn't actually matter. We're not going to make these into priorities. For anyone who's listening who might be like, I, I just don't see it. I'm like a little bit confused. What are you talking about when you're when you're referencing racism and then responsibility of all of these other people in the party and blah blah blah? Uh, let me just remind you of like the not too distant past. When a party underperforms, typically, what well, if it's Jack Layton at the helm? If it's uh, Tom O'Kerr at the helm? If it's Elizabeth May at the helm? If it's Justin Trudeau at the helm? Uh, we say. Where did the party go wrong? And the analysis, the, the types of discussion that people are having are about strategy, what happened in the party, what policy um, decisions they made, and so on. When it's Annamie Paul, 
Jagmeet Singh, there's a certain element of people who are like, I knew Jagmeet Singh was never going to be good for the party because he's too this. I knew Jagmeet Singh this. All of a sudden, the whole responsibility of the party, the, the kind of discussion we were able to have about strategy... For some people, that goes out the window because it's easy to focus on a person, especially a racialized person who's in a position of power. And that's what's happened to Annamie Paul as well. Whereas previously, you could say like, oh, you know, the Greens, Elizabeth May, this, this strategy, blah, blah, blah. It's like, this is all her fault. That is absurd. <laughs> that is patently absurd. None of these people have that level of power in their parties. There are other operatives in the parties. And if you folks who are on the left want to uh, be able to have an impact on what the party is doing as a whole, you have to recognize that. You have to see that and make sure that the responsibility that we all have when we're involved in any sort of community organization or party is to be involved at a level where we can say, okay, this is where the problem is, not just here, but it's here and here and here and here and here, and here are the institutional ruptures that we need to make to attack them. It is far too easy to say, this is all Nora's fault. I hate Nora. And then, you know, I don't know, never look at COVID mm-hmm. data ever again. That's ridiculous. You know, like there's, <laughs> there's a whole apparatus of people who are working on COVID stuff uh, in this country. This is a bad analogy, but um, there's a whole apparatus <laughs> of people who are working in these parties to make the parties do what they do. Uh, and all of those people are responsible for the performance of the party. Yeah, I, there's this like thing that exists, and we've talked about this before, on the in, in social democratic spaces in this country, the people that actually have power usually hate relinquishing that power and usually want to stay mm-hmm. as long as possible. And it is not always the mm-hmm. person who's in the spotlight. It's not always the leader. Sometimes it's a leader. I think Elizabeth May has created a vanity party around her personally. And to replace Elizabeth May, regardless of who replaces her, is going to be very, very difficult, which means it's even more difficult for Annie Paul to have been able to do anything when she, when she, when she won. Um, but often it isn't the leader themselves. Often it is these people that we never see in the, in the back room. And, you know, a perfect example of this is the Ontario NDP just announced their, their campaign chair is Michael Balagas, who's the director of the party already and who w- ran the Manitoba NDP under many governments. Like this is a guy who is exactly the kind of person we're talking about. And you know, this does not exist in the Liberals. It does not exist with the, with the Conservative Party. They have new campaign chairs for every election. And the reason why you want to have new blood in these spaces is is, is obvious, is obvious. It's because you need to have fresh eyes. It's You need to have someone who's looking at it at a different perspective. You need to have someone who doesn't feel personally invested in the way that it has always been done because that personal investment becomes a self-defeating uh, prophecy. Like you then all of a sudden start comp- like just falling into this spiral of doing things the way that you always do them. And then rather than actually looking in completely different ways, you look at like gimmicks, like like Leighton's mustache or the beard of Mulcair or whatever, <laughs> right? And, and, and that... <laughs> <laughs> that people can see fucking through that. People know that that's not authentic. And so, you know, the funny thing about this discussion is it, it doesn't have much to do with politics, with the political orientation of the party until you start to think through what is the most strategic way to get a left wing populist popular set of policies forward. 
Well, it's not going to be passing through people who for years and years and years and years and years have resisted that saying not only probably their personal shitty politics, but their personal politics don't even really matter because they're loyal to the idea that they can get elected doing the things that they have always done. And so to see someone like Andrea Horvath, who's been the leader of the Ontario NDP since, Sandy, do you know when she was first elected? Oh, don't do this to me. Um, 2005. <laughs> is that close? It was a little bit after uh, that. Is it close? It's close. 2009. Uh, okay, 2009. 2009 and three elections under her belt. And the only reason the NDP did so well in the last election that they that they did was because of a complete collapse of the yeah. Liberals. And you're going to get a guy who's a career backroom guy for the for the for the party to run a campaign that's going to be new and fresh and exciting with a fucking leader who's new and fresh and exciting. Give me a fucking break. Like, it's impossible. And actually, that feeds disenfranchisement and it feeds cynicism. And, you know, the only reason why that has been hidden at the federal level is because they do have a new person in, in Jagmeet Singh. They do have a new exciting image of somebody that they can then put forward in the exact same way that they've always put forward these images of people. And when it doesn't Im immediately work out, then the blame falls on that person's shoulders mm -hmm. and not on this party machine that is absolutely oriented towards doing the exact same fucking thing all the time and can never get out of that same logic. Right. But again, it only falls on that person's shoulders. For certain yeah, like people. not Andrea Horvath. I don't think that Andrea Horvath is going to take all the blame <laughs> <laughs> when the NDP loses the next election and does not do that well, because that is my prediction that you heard it here first. <laughs> 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 that is my prediction of how that's going to go, that, that she's not going to wear the blame of that. No. She's not. She's just not going to happen. It's going to be it's going to be attributed to the party as a whole. And very likely Mike, Michael Balagas's name won't come up. Uh, in that critique, uh, not at least not publicly. And maybe it doesn't have to come out publicly. I'm not saying that it does. In fact, that's probably an internal party conversation that needs to happen for people who are members of the party, um, of which I am not. And so it's just <laughs> like, you know, yeah, go have that conversation. Um, but also listen to me and Nora when we're telling you um, some really obvious shit about, um, uh, about why um, there is this sort of underperformance. But just note that that, that level of underperformance is not simply the fault of one or two people. It's also the fault, uh, more generally, of uh, a party culture that uh, allows that to continue um, without much support for people who want to rupture that sort of um, holding on to power really tightly by a small group of people. Uh, there should be ways and so far as I know from people who are in both parties, there are ways um, to to combat that, especially in the Green Party. Um, but that's not always respected from people who hold a lot of power, the types of people that Nora is talking about. Well, what are you going to do about it? <laughs> well, if I was running for the Green Party, what I would be doing, like... And I, I have not had any conversations with people internally. So this is literally me just kind of like off of the top of my head is I would be building a slate of people to replace federal counsel 
and to run in every single riding right now because there's a minority government. And those people would all agree to this radical vision that I have for the party that was forged. Maybe I've run before. And so maybe that radical vision has already been presented to members of the party. And maybe I use this radical vision to shop around to get people to join the party. And you start building now. That's what I would do with the Green Party. And I think that's really obvious. With the NDP, it's actually not that much different. And I know in the, in the Ontario NDP, they've at least uh, tossed out two candidates that sound like they would have been very good candidates and they're young and they're activists. And the NDP needs to stop this. They need to absolutely stop doing this, this same old thing if they want to have any hope in hell in advancing. Um, because otherwise, the strategy for advancement is literally hiding under coats and hoping for the fucking best, which is what happened in the last provincial election in Ontario. Uh, you also then, of course, have this very tricky problem with once they do get elected and then they, then they just start sucking and you're like, oh, shit, um, which, again, I'm going to say uh, John Horgan uh, looking at looking at you where uh, this is a government that um, to reduce stigma didn't want to announce that there was a, a covid outbreak at a at a shelter in Kelowna. Right. Oh, that's so kind of you to, to just you don't want to have stigma. And so you just won't announce that there's fucking COVID outbreaks. That's so fucking kind. You fucking monsters. Right. <laughs> uh, like to not even say anything that about what's so it in. And, obviously not the reason. Right. <laughs> so like there are things that, that can be done. But I think, you know, more broadly for party activists who feel like they're always bumping up against these forces that they can't see or they can't understand. And then that might fall into anti-black racism when they're coming up with their analyses. Uh, this is where you have to fucking uh, not do that. <laughs> like you have to not only not do that, but you have to understand what the fucking problem is here. And if um, if this show hasn't uh, convinced you of that, well, I mean, there's more reading that you can do. But um, but the stakes are really, really high because, you know, I was just sent a video um, from someone who is a committed anti-vax individual. And the video is a one hour documentary on global capitalism. Okay, and 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 they introduced it saying this is all facts. This is all facts. You have to watch this. And I was like, okay, sure. Let's see. And it's, you know, for the first fucking 30 minutes, it's a video that could have been made by a left wing filmmaker for sure. It looks at how the biggest investors like the the biggest investment firms in the biggest corporations in every single industry in the world are, are the same investment firms. And it just shows that investment firms just hedge their bets and they 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 own shares in Microsoft and Apple and Coke and Pepsi, you know, in in anything where they're trying to make sure that they're making a bit a bit of money, they're 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 purchasing shares. This is not a fucking surprise. This is how global capitalism works. Um, and then, of course, the, the documentary in the last, you know, 20 minutes then pivots to, oh, and therefore the elites are having this great reset. And the great reset is to then <laughs> – this is my – I love this uh, – is to then seize all of our assets and then create a global government, right? As if, like, our assets um, and our ability to purchase and to put ourselves in debt isn't literally holding up the system that they actually need to maintain, right? There's really no <laughs> path forward into making that happen. <laughs> but I'm, I'm watching this and, and, I'm, and, and, and you know, this is uh, someone who's in a, in, a, uh, in a part of Canada where there's not many job opportunities and the job opportunities that are there are extractive and, you know, dangerous because I have other family who just got critically injured in one of these fucking facilities. And... I'm watching this and I'm like, where is the left? Where is the motherfucking left? Because this video, can, you can take the first 30 second, 30 minutes, and then you can put a second 30 minutes at the end and bring people to a totally different conclusion, which is not that, you know, fucking, therefore the UN is going to be the next world government, which is fucking obviously hilarious. Absurd. So like, what are we going to do? <laughs> like, what, what, what's it going to take for us to actually get this shit together? That we can talk to people who are like searching and disaffected and, and scared, frankly, about their future. 
uh, and not have them run into the arms. Literally, the end of this video ends. The, the video ends with two shocking things to me. One, the guy says, we are the 99%. That's the end of the video. And then two, there's some stills of words at the end telling everybody to share this video with everybody they know. And it says, we are welcoming you with open arms. Join our community. Join the resistance. Join the fight back. And it's just like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yeah, I really hope that um, members of the NDP, members of the Green Party, who are doing these sorts of uh, considerations and post-mortems on poor results or disappointing results, um, really think about that last piece of what you just said, like we are welcoming you with open arms. When you're having these uh, discussions out in the world on on uh, private uh, social media companies, um, uh, apps that are made to increase the sort of like rage that people have uh, towards one another. Um, that's how the algorithms work. And you're attacking people in a way that um, is different than you have really um, criticized the parties in the past. Just note that just like in my DMs, there's a bunch of people who are racialized, who are black, who are indigenous, who are watching how you are responding to these things. And they are making decisions about whether or not they are welcome with open arms into these parties. And rightfully so, um, maybe deciding that no, that isn't a party that I can get involved with. That isn't an organization, if, it, if we're talking about an organization, an organization that I can get involved with because they don't see through their own bullshit what they're doing. You are having an impact on your ability to organize in the future when you don't have a good understanding of anti-racist principles in addition to a good understanding of how power works in an organization, where it's concentrated and who it's really concentrated in and thus who to focus on and how to focus um, your own ruptures that you're trying to make in these institutions. A lot of people can see through that bullshit and they're going to make support, they're going to make decisions about whether or not they can be involved in an organization like yours based on what they're seeing. So I guess learn from these right-wing documentarians. <laughs> an awful thing to think. But, but it's, fu it's funny because, you know, I was, I was watching this with an eye to seeing where is the, the, the right-wing, fascist, racist, anti-Semitic tropes. And they're getting really good at scrubbing that kind of thing. That like it would like I mean, I could I could explain where there was like I mean, George Soros made an appearance, but he only made an appearance. And, and it would have to you'd have to ignore all of the stuff they said about Bill Gates, which is all fucking true. Right. Um, and so it's it's like, yeah, they, they're fucking getting really, really good at this. And and very interestingly, the way that they talk about the, the globe, the world is always just North America and Western Europe. And when they talk about global capitalism, what they really mean is Western capitalism. And so when we fall into the same kinds of fucking tropes and, and ignoring the rest of the world, ignoring people who are not among the ranks of the organizations that we are currently in, your analysis is going to be shittier. Your analysis is going to have fucking um, like holes, obviously. And 
you need people around the table who are looking at this stuff right now going, this this seems like a bad scene. I'm not interested in this. Yeah. And so as as these organizations get smarter about how they're presenting themselves and who they're opening up to, and it's, I mean, God, it's having such a terrible effect. It's having such an awful effect. Like members, as Nora said, members of our families, people that we know, um, are being tricked into these kind of really fascist or white supremacist organizations because of this stuff. We, too, have to be smart about the way that we are engaging publicly. And uh, the one last note I'd like to say is it's like, if, you, if you're having these critical conversations on Twitter and Facebook, just really think, especially those two platforms, okay, just think really hard about what you're being manipulated into. Because those platforms are not neutral spaces to have you know, deep debates about the trajectory of an organization or the trajectory of a party. They are created to reward rage and to reward polarization, which is useful in some contexts. But I don't know that it's useful if you are trying to build within a group of people um, some sort of way to work together to create ruptures in a fucking uh, hegemonically terrible society for all sorts of different ways. Like, you know, use the rage machine when it makes sense to strategically use the rage machine. Be critical of the rage machine and understand what the rage machine is doing to you and what it is uh, encouraging you to do and how it's encouraging you to act when you're using it. Just be critical. Like... Again, this is why I haven't responded to these folks um, uh, on on Twitter because, you know, I choose my trolls very carefully. <laughs> it's all, it's super strategic. Every way that I use um, any social media is super strategic. Um, uh, even when I'm like not using it for a while, which is, has been kind of how I've been engaging online for the last little bit. But when I am, it's all very strategic and you should be thinking that way. These are private companies who are making money off of you. They don't give a shit about whether your party succeeds or not. So be smart about it. Be strategic always.